When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. Uh, I am Hithliday. I am the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. And this week, uh, Storm's Matt Court joins me, one of the great writers at ATQ. How you doing? I'm very well. Yourself? No, not bad. Um, we sure had an interesting weekend of duck sports. Um, it uh, started out bad and then it got exciting and then it looked real bad and then it looked real exciting again <laughs> um the the finish on sunday um was pretty if there weren't some other dramatic smacks going on on sunday i would say that uh oregon's bats coming to life uh, on the diamond but baseball and softball would be the most exciting thing that i saw that day um uh, let's start out talking about a little bit about baseball. Uh, they just finished up a series against USC. Uh, what'd you think of the ducks this weekend? Well, I thought they were uh, spectacular and they played three very close games. Uh, one, two of them, the first uh, game on Friday by two runs and the game on Sunday by one run where they had to come from way behind. They trailed in that Sunday game six to one early on and managed to come all the way back to win that game seven to six. So uh, it, lacking only a key hit in the Saturday game for a sweep, they really looked good with the bats, uh, both uh, in, in Friday's late, late in Friday's game and late in Sunday's game. They showed real resilience in uh, storming all the way back on that Sunday game. That was really impressive to watch unfold. I mean, it was crazy because they just went down by a huge amount on that Sunday game, like the the first inning yeah. and the Ducks are the home team. So it was the top of the first, uh, you know, USC puts up five runs, you know, I think hits two home runs or, you know, at least, a, you know, multi-run home run. Uh, yeah, it was just bonkers. It was just like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty close to turning this off. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't really do that, but like, I don't, it was the, you know, because they had, they had that, um, going back in time a little bit on Tuesday, they had that Singleton game where they went up to Spokane and they played Gonzaga. And, uh, right. you know, that was a game where the ducks were in control the entire time, but then they, you know, gave up some home runs, um, you know, and it suddenly got real tight and you know, the Oregon, you know, the, the, the pitching staff was, you know, kind of inconsistent. And then, you know, fast forward to the USC games and, you know, you, you had them struggling in, in, you know, a little bit in one of the games, uh, you know, I think all three of them, you know, where they got in the hole um, and, and in the Sunday game, you know, just really got pretty far behind. I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I think you can maybe bracket that, 
top of the first on Sunday against USC, because, you know, that's sort of a, a rare one-off thing. You know, what, what seems like the through line here to me is number one, you can never count this team out because their bats are on fire, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it, you know, the, they can come out of nowhere and tack, you know, you know, they had, they had two multi-run innings at the end of the, at the end of the series against USC. And that was enough to win the series. Right. And that's what they've done, you know, repeatedly. They've shown an incredible ability to score runs late in games. And once they, one of the things we posited in the review, the preview of this series against USC was the idea that what Oregon had had success doing is getting past the starting pitching and into the bullpen. Now, it's not, not every bullpen pitcher are they able to tag. But frequently what happens is the games are pretty close or Oregon's behind, and then they finally start generating the second time through the lineup or maybe even starting the third time through the lineup. They start generating some offense against the starting pitcher, and they have to pull the guy. And so the next person up uh, from the bullpen is somebody that Oregon seems to be able most of the time to start getting some hits against and start generating some runs. And this happens later in games and other teams just cannot do the same thing against Oregon's bullpen that the Oregon hitters have shown they're able to do against their opponent's bullpen. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. It's like the pitching is totally in reverse because, you know, I I have a lot of confidence in Oregon's um, relief pitching. Um, I mean, if nothing else, they've got like 12 guys in that bullpen. Right. Yeah. You know, huge and, pitching staff. Yeah. And, and was is uh, something that gladdens my heart to see because I'm a radical on this question, as I've talked about on this podcast mm-hmm. before, that I think that pitchers ought to be pulled like on the first sign of trouble. Um, like I've never I don't I I was about to make a hyperbolic statement. I'll temper it a little bit and say I, I can remember a million instances watching baseball in which uh, the pitcher starts to show trouble and then gets worse. And mm-hmm. I, I can't think of any. It probably has happened and I'm just not remembering them. It's confirmation bias. But my uh, a squishy human brain can't remember a single time in which a pitcher gets in trouble and then pitches themselves out of trouble. Um, you know it it happens from time to time it happens but you're the other way happens a lot more frequently and we certainly saw that in the Sunday game your theory proven where Oregon eventually pulled its starting pitcher after they were down six runs in the second inning well that there's a situation where they would have been better served by making a change earlier as things got out of hand in that first inning I mean, it's easy to say, right? And, and like sure. I said, it's probably confirmation bias. It probably happens all the time that that pitchers pitch themselves out of, uh, you know, out of trouble. I mean, some of the most exciting games. Hell, we'll talk about softball in a little bit here. You know, arguably, uh, Oregon pitched itself out of a you know a bases loaded situation. Mm-hmm. Um, which like that meets the criteria of pitching yourself into trouble and then pitching yourself out. I guess. Anyway, yeah. um, you know, I. I Watching USC's pitching, starting pitching versus Oregon's starting pitching, it's like, I wish Oregon had those starters, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, you know, and same with Gonzaga, although Gonzaga was weird because like, even though Oregon made this like special trip to go play him, all the announcers could talk about was that like, 
Oh, Gonzaga's not taking this game seriously. They their <laughs> their third baseman is pitching, and uh, the 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 first baseman's playing third, and 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 they literally had a guy named Rando playing first. It's like, oh boy, this sounds like an Abbott and Costello routine. I was just yeah, waiting for somebody to ask me who's on third, so I could say I don't know, and just really <laughs> close the circle on it. Um, so anyway, it was you know all 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 uh, Badwater talked about in the preview was like the danger of Gonzaga's bullpen. They have the third baseman pitching, right? <laughs> and so anyway, um, like, boy, it seems like every baseball team that Oregon plays like they've got killers in the start and then as you note like the you know Oregon survives them you know it's good for baseball that they play nine innings you know if they play right. you know down to seven or only seven like softball does they probably lose some more games um you know they, they sort of survive and rally late against the relief um I uh, I don't have a good theory for why that should be do you any any theories you can think of for why Oregon would be successful? Like if they kept the same starter in the entire time, I could see like, oh, we got used to that guy. You know, we figured out that when he does this, he, you know, the pitch is going to drop and so forth. Like, but the whole point of relievers is to take that away. So like, what's up with that? What do you think is going on there? Yeah, I think there's an assumption that, uh, you know, how good you are when you start a game is how good you might be in the sixth inning. And I don't think that's the case. I think that over the period of a a baseball game, the starting pitcher's arm starts to lose a little bit of pop and he doesn't have as much movement maybe on uh, the changeup or the curve and the fastball instead of 96 is now 92 or whatever the numbers are. And also you're right about the point, and this happens a lot in softball where You've seen what the pitcher can do, and you recognize, you start recognizing, and nobody says this, but you start recognizing visually clues about the pitch that's coming by the way the pitcher is approaching what they're going to throw. And so after a while, the players get used to whatever the speed and movement of that pitcher's ball is. If the speed slows down a little bit, it's easier to get your bat around and get on it. It's easier to see it. So over time, I think this is probably generally true of starting pitchers. You're just your stuff in the sixth inning is just not the same stuff as it was in the first inning. And so the batters have a better chance of getting a hit. Now, how Oregon is going from not being able to touch some of these pitchers to just knocking them out of the park uh, over the course of a few innings and everybody doing it. That's the other thing that's amazing about it. It's not just, well, one guy figures it out and starts hitting them. It's like all of a sudden everybody the on the roster lineup. has got it figured out. I mean, I think that's the most remarkable thing about, about this team's, you know, like everybody in the lineups batting over 341 or some, you know, bonkers yeah. number like that. And it's like from top, you know, it's like there's one guy and he's who's at like 320 and he's the like black sheep of the lineup <laughs> because right. he's only batting at an average that in the uh, in or in in the major leagues would be uh, you know, all of yeah. fame yeah, yeah. You know, millions of dollars <laughs> yeah i know it's uh, you know it, it's kind of crazy i mean it probably speaks to the fact that there's you know what college pitching is versus you know mlb pitching is sure you know, you're talking about something fairly different and that there's just not enough good pitchers to go around and so the ace pitcher in college is 
you know, an ace pitcher for college, you can survive him. You can get, you know, you can, you know, the, the opposing management is going to keep him on the mound too long. Um, and, and the relief is just not going to be as good because what are the odds that you have both an ace pitcher and, you know, ace starter and an ace reliever, you know, that's sort of my, in my a, and a college team. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the thing that's remarkable, you know, we should probably talk more about is that, you know, every one of these Oregon batters just really chops it just like it is, you know, I hate to sound like the, the guys in uh, Moneyball who are sitting around the table and talking mm-hmm. about like, you know, he looks like a batter and you can, you know, <laughs> Kelly's coming into the room, you know, two minutes before he comes into the room and look at his girlfriend. Oh boy. You know, all that uh, right. stuff is just so ridiculous, but like just watching it on the screen, like those guys are hacking they they swing early in the count uh you know they're not like waiting for the perfect pitch they are trying to put the ball in the outfield um and they're doing it at a pretty high rate like that's the thing that's remarkable is that it's not you know a lot of times when you watch you know pro baseball what you're watching is strike 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 home run you know uh right and and that's what we're not what we're seeing out of oregon's bats we're seeing like strike single you know to the middle gap you know mm-hmm. you know the you're not seeing bloopers you're not seeing bunts you're not really seeing small ball and i don't mean to like denigrate small ball i actually really enjoy watching small ball but like these guys are hacking it to the to the outfield yeah um, and they're very it, they're very good at waiting on a pitch that they want if you you look at some of the pitch counts uh especially in this that sunday game sort of later it's not everybody, but every once in a while, somebody will come along and they'll run out an eight or nine pitch at mm-hmm. that and get and get a hit. And so they're they're waiting for the pitch that they want to hit, and they're they're capable of if they need to foul off a few pitches to get to the pitch they want, they're very good at doing that as well. And a lot of guys are. It's not just one or two of the guys that are good at it. It's almost the entire lineup seems to understand that the pitch that they want is going to be there if they can just stay at the plate long enough. All right, let's talk about the games that are coming up. Um, uh, they've got a midweek series uh, against San Francisco uh, here in Eugene. Um, the, I don't know much about San Francisco. Uh, they've played a number of Pac-12 teams. I, I noticed them coming up in the record, you know, whenever I'm perusing other teams' schedule. Um, Tuesday and Wednesday, both of them at PK Park uh, in the afternoons. Um, I'm not really foreseeing any particular difficulties there, are you? I, I doubt it. Uh, you know, this is a good opportunity, I think, for Oregon to get some work for some of the pitchers that are not weekend starters. Uh, kind of guys that might you know you might see against a Gonzaga or a, a San Francisco, um, and and to to perhaps give some playing time to some of the guys that aren't in the weekend series. So there was some talk the other day uh, at the game about some of the catchers that Oregon has who, have, who are coming back from injuries that the team is really high on once they can come back fully from those injuries. And so it's an opportunity to use people in maybe ways you don't normally use them in and to use pitchers maybe that don't normally get uh, long innings. They don't, they don't start. They might come in for an inning or two in short relief or maybe three or four longer relief, but it's a chance to get those guys some work as well. Uh, And I, you know, I think in this case, uh, 
they've got a good chance of, you know, obviously winning those games and, and getting some guys some playing time and some game experience that otherwise they wouldn't be able to have. Well, it's a 14-12 and 12 team. Uh, probably the most notable thing that happened was they swept St. John's, which, uh, uh, you know, is an, also a team that Oregon played. Uh, you know, the only other uh, Pac-12 teams that they, that they played are uh, Arizona State, which they lost both of those games. Um, the or uh, I'm sorry, all three of them. They played Missouri in between. I'm not sure what that's about. Uh yeah, not, not a lot of like excitement on their schedule. It doesn't look like a particularly uh, difficult series. Should be a nice tune-up for uh, their trip to UCLA. Um, that's uh, you know that's going to be a pretty exciting one. UCLA's ranked team. Um, they're doing uh, very well this season. I think they're ranked ahead of Oregon, even though Oregon is number one in the Pac-12 um, in standings. Mm-hmm. Um, w- what do you think about the the series? What do you think keys of the game uh, games are going to be? Well, I think it's a, a good series for Oregon to take on at this point. It's a it's a very busy week. You get you know Tuesday. Usually, there's one midweek game, not two. So the two midweek games and then the three games on the weekend, following the three games that they just played. That's a lot of games in a short period of time. The good thing about Oregon is they seem to sort of get on a roll, and this is one of the things that I think we noticed in in that USC game, and in actually several of the games is that the team seems to feed on its own energy. And, and so once guys start getting hits, the rest of the team sort of seems to pick that up. And so I think that the excess number of games, if you will, that they're playing this week and combined with the USC weekend games, um, you know, gives them a chance to really develop a ton of energy. Uh, UCLA is going to be a tough uh, opponent, I think. I mean, we're down in Los Angeles, so they're at home. We're going to have to work. Um, the Ducks are going to have to, you know, do the things that they've been doing that have been uh, so successful so far, which is if they can get to that starting pitcher early and get into the bullpen, they're going to have success, uh, I would suspect, offensively. Uh, UCLA is a good squad. They're 15 and 8 overall. They're, uh, but, don't, but only three and three in conference, and so that's uh, that's a little bit encouraging, I think, from the Oregon perspective. Is yeah, they um, dropped their series against USC. Um, although the game that they won, they won eleven to two, and then they went right. and played Harvard and won twenty five to two. Which yeah, boy, uh, <laughs> yeah. So they can hit. I mean, it's not. It's just the inconsistency of it. I mean, yeah. they also got shut out by Harvard. So right. it's, uh, it's yeah, it's uh, crazy. Hard, hard. They, they go which, from which team. Uh, the next day, right? They go from yeah, like twenty-five right. runs to zero runs against yeah. the same team in their home stadium on yeah. the same weekend. It's, yeah, yeah. So that's and then, uh, and then the and then the next the third game went to eleven innings, um, yeah. and was close, a low-scoring, close game. So, you know, it seem it seems like uh, there's an opportunity there for Oregon's uh, offense to just out outscore them. Uh, yeah, that's the know. other thing I, I noticed perusing UCLA's schedule is simply, you know, like that they've got a couple of double digit. I, boy, I guess college baseball, you're, you're now measuring how many double <laughs> yeah, digit, yeah. you know, run games they have, which like, I can, you know, coming up watching major leagues, I, uh, I can count the number of double digit games that I yeah, watch in one hand. You rarely but, see it. You know, UCLA's only got four or five, uh, you know, double double digit run games, uh, whereas Oregon does it 
you know, basically every time, time they yeah. take the diamond. Um, yeah. You know, this looks like one that, you know, kind of like against USC, I sort of expect Oregon to bat their way out of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you well, might that's see one some... of the, I was going to say that's one of the great things about this team is that as I think as they have showed repeatedly and certainly uh, showed on Sunday, you never really can count them out of a game. It, regardless, I mean, they're down six to one and you're thinking, oh man, this is, you know, not, this is ugly. But then all of a sudden they start hitting the ball and they start scoring runs. And so there's no, there's no game that they appear to be actually out of if they still have an at-bat left or two. That's the remarkable thing about baseball is, well, it, like I said, it goes nine innings. So there's, right. there's time for comebacks. And the other thing is, you know, unlike, football and a bunch of other games, there's no scoring on defense, right? Like mm-hmm. there's the, you know, the, 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 the DB's not going to intercept the ball and run it back for a touchdown. There's no special teams. It's not like soccer where the goalie can occasionally score, um, you know, or, or hockey or, you know, like any other game, uh, virtually every other major sport, there are ways for the defense to score the defense to, you know, put the offense into scoring position. Baseball doesn't work that way. The, the, right. the only thing that the defense can do is prevent the other team from scoring. Uh, you have to have, you know, and, and what that means from a, you know, game theory perspective is like, it's better to have offense than defense. You can bat your way out of a hole. You can't pitch your way out of a hole. Right. Um, yeah, and it no way seems to catch like up. that. You know, it seems like the way that's that's the way that Oregon's team is constructed, and so you can never count them out. And, and shame on anybody uh, who definitely does not include the two people on this podcast who who might have turned <laughs> off the Sunday game because yeah. they should have known that's what Oregon can do. Exactly. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about softball. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Okay, the uh, softball team took on uh, Cal last week. Uh, they did not have a midweek game um, uh, other than finishing up their weekend run against BYU. Um, but we've talked about that game on this podcast last week. Um, they uh, they dropped the opener uh, against Cal, which is sort of a surprise. What did you think was going on in that game? It was a, an odd game. I think it's just one of those where you get out there and you just don't have it that day, which for this team is not that common i mean they simply have not played any games where even again even when they were playing a team that what might be superior to them and they ultimately lost the game there was never a game when you're kind of going man they just don't they don't match up at all against this team and they had that kind of a game in the first game against uh cal and Cal just, uh, you know, came out and jumped on him. And I don't know, again, it's one of these things where there's some, I'm sure, psychology involved, but um, they, you know, they, Cal waited around and waited around and waited around. And then all of a sudden in the fifth inning uh, with Oregon leading, 
Cal just jumped yeah. on the pitching and, and Oregon uh, felt really in control for the first four innings. Yeah. And in fact, most of that fifth inning, I believe that all that scoring happened with two outs. Uh, mm-hmm. I may be misremembering that, but it felt like late in the top of the, ha- the, the, the fifth that that scoring explosion happened. And then I don't know, like it, I, I hate to criticize uh, uh, based on, I don't know, psychological or, or just like appearance factors, but like it really looked like Oregon had given up at the end of that game. Like they were making some like lazy fielding errors mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the in the seventh um, where it was like, boy, you know, I, you know, they, they wound up getting mercy ruled um, and it sort of looked like they had given up. Um uh, yeah, I didn't love seeing that on the other hand, like would have taken a real heroic effort to bat their way out of that one. Um, right. That's a lot of runs and in, in softball, that's a ton of runs to get in, uh, in one inning or two innings. You don't normally, I mean, the fact that Cal did it was the thing that's shocking about it, that they scored yeah. 11 runs in two innings. You don't yeah, I know it's it crazy. Like often. there's nothing else in their, their record that suggests that they had that in them. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you see that from time to time in, in, in all sports, it just team sort of comes out of nowhere and clobbers you. Um, and you know, and I think what we saw for the rest the rest of the series was that Cal's bats, you know, never really got that hot again. You know, they threatened Oregon uh, a couple of times. They jumped out to a lead in the top of the first um, in the the third game on Sunday, sort of like USC did um, Mm -hmm. to the baseball team. Um, But then Oregon just did Oregon stuff, you know, like a, you know, two run inning here, two run inning there, a four run inning. And, you know, sure enough, by, I believe the sixth, they were, they were ahead and they never gave up the lead. And in fact, you know, the closest ever got was like a real sweater at the bottom of the seventh or the top of the seventh that they were at home. So there wasn't a bottom right. of the seventh. Um, you know, where the, the, the bases got loaded, they switched pitching. Um, Jordan Dale, um, uh, came out and, and got the close, even though she, you know, she gave up a run. She had a one run cushion, uh, you know, shut it down on a strikeout, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, that that's true. And the team showed incredible resilience in this game because they were down, as you know, they gave up three runs in the first inning. And so they're, they're playing from behind, uh, but, you know, by the time they got to the fifth inning, it was four to two Cal and Oregon scored two runs to come back and tie then tie the game in the bottom of the fifth. But then they get into into the uh, sixth inning and the first almost the first thing that happens is they give up a home run yeah, uh, to, to fall behind again. And so, you know, that at that point, you can imagine a lot of teams going, oh, my God, and especially after that first game debacle going, well, you know, it's just not our day. We can't, you know, we can't come back again. But they did came back again uh, and and ended up winning the game. And then, as you know, shutting out, uh, giving only get, giving up one run in the top of the seventh and closing out uh, the Golden Bears there at, at home. And that, so it was uh, the team showed a ton of resilience in this game. And I think really, uh, you know, hopefully learned a little bit about kind of kind of like we talked about with the baseball team. They're never really out of a game. As long as it's reasonably close, they need to, you know, keep at it because good things can happen. Well, Cal's not a bad team. Either. The other thing, you know, should be said, mm-hmm. they, they have, they've got a, a pitcher who's also a batter, which you don't right. see that often. But uh, I feel like you see more often in softball than in baseball. Yeah, you're um, more likely to have a good hit. And, and she's uh, uh, Halagian is the leader of the home run leader for Cal. And uh, she took a real uh, scary, she, she took a swing at a ball and it, you know, it, it bounced, I think off of her arm and wound up clipping her in the face. Mm, and then there was a, you know, kind of a, a, 
it was interesting because it was not clear what that should have been called, whether that should have been a hit by pitch or a strike or a ball. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I think it got ruled as a ball. And so she had to go back out with like blood all over her no face. Uh, I, I certainly hope somebody got her a, a butterfly bandage. So she, you know, it doesn't scar up on her. Um, the, but, uh, but then, you know, takes another swing and, you know, misses and winds up getting struck out. Um, but that that top of their lineup, you know, repeatedly did damage to the Ducks. And then, you know, that was sort of the thing that I was noticing about Cal was that, like, they their lineup starts real strong and then it peters out. Yes. And they basically, like, that was the scoring pattern in all three of these games was that, the, you know, their, their first three batters would, you know, do some damage. Uh, and then they'd control the rest of it. And it was just whether or not those girls could get home, you know, that, that wound up, you know determining whether they were going to score or not um and, and uh again it's the sort of thing where well we should also talk about how how oregon's pitching did in that in this series um it was kind of an adventure wouldn't you say a little bit yeah you had some uh, you know some mistakes made and some uh deep balls given up that shouldn't have been given up and it's it's odd you know we're middle of the season now for oregon and all the jitters and weird stuff that happens when you're early in a season and you're just sort of getting back into game action uh, should have should have passed by uh, by now. And, and so it was very interesting to see the, the, some of these problems pop up in, in the first game. And then, you know, again, sort of towards the end of this, the last game, um, some, some interesting uh, mistakes were made that, that allowed Cal uh, particularly in this this Sunday game, to to stay ahead and and or to close up the game um, when you didn't really want him to do that. Stevie Hansen came in in middle relief of Clitheramus. Um, I I thought Clitheramus has had a pretty rocky season, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Hansen, you know, impressed me, but she sort of you know she wound up loading the bases and they had to bring in uh, Jordan Dale to, to close it out, which I sort of thought was vindication for Jordan Dale. Cause she, you know, didn't have a great go of things to start out with. Um, I don't know. I, I sort of like the baseball side, the, the, the pitching uh, is making me nervous, which, you know, I recall the first time we recorded a podcast, you know, I, I sort of said the opposite, you know, right. like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, we're Oregon's bats. I love the defense, you know, great fielding here. And now I'm just like, I don't care about fielding anymore. I want to see better pitching and, and, uh, um, and yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm a little worried about the circle. Uh, what do you think? Well, it's crazy how much softball has changed. You know, when I first started paying attention to it about 15 years ago, uh, if you could score a run, you were probably going to win the game. You had a ton of NCAA softball World Series games and won zero. Today, it's a much different. The pitchers are not worse. It's just the batting is the batting so, much, so much better. better. Yeah, uh, I I had the exact same experience. Uh, yeah. Where just like the the pitching was so dominant for mm-hmm. such a long time in softball, and you know I, I'm not I don't want to speculate what the reasons why the bats have gotten better, but it is definitely the case that there used to be invincible pitchers and they are no longer invincible, and it's because there's a lot more. Uh, uh, you know, women's softball players coming up to the plate who can, you know, steer that pitch down and, and, and connect. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the uh, training, the training for hitters has just gotten much better. 
uh, over the last decade or so where they before it was like you know you had you had girls on the mound who could throw 65 70 miles an hour and no one could hit them now you have the same pitching you have the same speed of pitching yeah i mean you but, can look at the miles per hour they yeah. put it on the screen you know yep. like the the nba chain changing mm-hmm. yeah and and the the batters have just gotten much better and more athletic and the training the 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 pitches they see in training are similar to the ones they're going to see in a game now games are always different but you can simulate it to the point where it's not so different that you're freaked out by it. And so I think that uh, the training has just gotten better. The, the, the coaching of batting has improved dramatically. And so that's why now all of a sudden you've got games like this that are eight, seven or 11 to two, uh, you know, scoring those runs, getting those hits happens a lot more frequently. Yeah, it makes me wonder whether or not we should, you know, I feel like maybe a lot of Oregon fans are thinking back to those Mike White teams and, you know, dominant pitching and like and mm-hmm. asking where did the dominant pitching go? And I, I, I sort of feel like maybe that's an unfair question to ask. Like maybe the, the pitching that Oregon has now is just as good and it's just they're facing a different caliber of batter. Yeah, I would be willing to bet that the, the average number of runs scored across the board in NCAA softball is up from previous years, just period. Well, softball does not have a midweek game. They actually aren't going to play any midweek games until I think you know, late April when they play Portland State on a Tuesday. Um, it's just nothing but conference three-game series. Uh, the next one is this weekend at UCLA, just like baseball. In fact, I think all of these games are scheduled to, to be playing at the same time, which I don't really love. Um, on the other hand, they should all be televised, so if you've got two monitors going, you can watch them both simultaneously, which i got to say I kind of enjoy. Um <laughs> Uh, UCLA softball, uh, ain't bad. Um, you looking forward to anything particular in this series? Well, this is a real test, I think for Oregon, uh, UCLA has has yet to lose a conference game. They're obviously a quality program. I think it will be good for Oregon. It'll be a real test for them to uh, get out against somebody who is at least in the conference, a high, high quality opponent. This is not to denigrate Cal or anybody else that Oregon has played, but you know when you're uh, you know six and zero in conference and and you're uh, you know UCLA is twenty eight three overall, they're yeah. clearly a high quality program that has a lot going for them. So and they they have yet to lose a game at home, so the challenges are are pretty uh, hefty and obvious. I would say you're, you're on the road against the what right now looks like one of the best teams, if not the best team in the conference. That's where Oregon wants to be. They've at times, I think uh, you'd agree, Oregon has looked like one of the best or the best team in the Pac-12. So we're going to settle that to some degree this weekend with this three-game series uh, against the Bruins. They're coming off a sweep of Washington in Seattle. Uh, pretty impressive performance. Um, not uh you know, the the thing that's interesting about UCLA just, you know, running down their schedule is, uh, you know, all their games are fairly close or, or you know, they, they shut out Arizona. Um, I mean, completely like it's a, they did not give up a, a run to Arizona, um, but against Washington, you know, it's it's 
win by one or uh, two games they win by a single run um you know against some of the 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 power conference teams that they played in the early part of the schedule you know it's a bunch of one run two run wins um you know not not all the you know, not super explosive at the plate. You know, I think this is a team that, you know, looks like a pretty tough team, you know, a tough out, certainly, you know, you don't get this far into the season with only three losses and none at home. Um, if you're not a tough team, but I mean, I think, you know, Oregon's in for a dogfight. you know what I mean? Like it doesn't look like, yeah. you know, it doesn't look like a team that Oregon is just going to, uh, you know, blow the doors off and hit a bunch of home runs against it also doesn't look like a team that you know is going to light Oregon up either I think this is going to be you know some pretty well contested baseball yeah it uh it looks to me like that's the case that it you look at the UCLA games most of them are relatively close uh two of the Washington wins were by one run one was by four runs they only gave up six runs to Washington in the three games uh, set and as you note, they gave up no runs to Arizona when they played them. Uh, that that has been pretty typical lately. Uh, no runs, one run, two runs given up. They, you have to go clear back to almost the beginning of the season to find uh, where UCLA gave up five or six runs in a game. So you can see this developing as a, a very low scoring pitching duel. Uh, and defensive duel between these two uh, clubs because UCLA is clearly not a team that gives up a lot of runs and has obviously excellent pitching and defense. Oregon at times has had excellent pitching and defense, and, but has also shown the ability to really hit the ball and and score some runs. So the challenge for Oregon here is going to be able to is going to are they going to be able to score enough runs to win these games against a difficult defensive and pitching opponent? Well, the thing that you know, I've always sort of felt like the secret sauce that Oregon softball has is is true on the baseball side as well. Is that it? It has looked like the more athletic team than than almost every one of the opponents that I've watched them play, um, by which I mean there's a lot of stolen bases. There's a lot of real crisp fielding. There's, you know, uh, and they sort of like they sneak in a little extra offense, you know, and they sneak in, a little, you know, oh, 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 that went for a double play instead of just tap out second. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I probably think, you know, I haven't really watched anything of UCLA, but just, you know, going over the numbers, like I'm willing to bet that that advantage kind of disappears against UCLA. The UCLA is probably a pretty damned athletic team too. And that, you know, that if Oregon's going to win, they're going to have to do it honestly. They're just going to have to out pitch, out hit, you know, outplay, you know, fundamental baseball and, you know, winning because they're in, you know, better shape, better conditioning than their opponents uh, is probably not going to be the way, that, you know, the series goes down. Uh, should be pretty interesting to watch. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, when we get back, we'll talk a little golf and a little bit of football and we'll see if there's anything in the mailbag. So you've written a little bit about the uh, golf team uh, this year. Um, uh, they are sometimes on television, but not always. Uh, it, it, why don't you catch us up? How's the golf team doing? Well, they had a really interesting weekend. Um, the women were down at the Ping uh, Arizona State Invitational in Phoenix uh, at, at playing at the Pavago Golf Course, which is ASU's home course. And Arizona State played like it was their home course, like they, you know, that home cooking was awesome for them. They ended up winning their own tournament. Uh, they were 25 under 
wow. a three-day tournament. Yeah, it was very impressive. Uh, the Ducks uh, actually had to come back a little bit and ended up in second place in this tournament at 10 under. So they had 15-stroke difference, which is interesting because, of course, in the, the previous time that they had faced each other, uh, Oregon had won by about that same amount um so that was when they were playing basically usc's home course right exactly so um you know in some ways it's a you know win for oregon i guess you could say because they're playing on somebody else's home course and they they played the arizona state played like it was their home course it was really impressive to watch um to watch some of that action and watch those, those scores for ASU dropping, dropping and dropping, you know, against par um, over the three days, they just really did well um, on that course, which you would expect it's their home course after all. Um, and, and Oregon didn't have the sort of great weekend that they have had in a couple other tournaments where they won this year. Um, you didn't have anybody go super low. You had a lot of, um, you know, uh, scores where somebody would be two or three over par one day and then maybe uh, one under the next day. So you didn't just didn't have the sort of cohesion of low score after low score after low score for Oregon that they've shown in some of these previous tournaments that they've played in. Well, the thing that uh, strikes me as interesting about the, uh, the women's golf team is that I'm not trying to take away from anything individual, but it's not like one of these teams that's constructed against, you know, one superstar player and then everybody else sort of like is carrying her clubs, you know, right. like it, yeah. everybody on the Oregon screen, you know, I think at that USC uh, Invitational, uh, you know, like every one of Oregon's golfers finished in the top 15 right um, or something along those lines yeah that's exactly uh, what that's correct uh you know it, it it is an impressive team top to bottom um they uh uh and they finally get to return home they they played the last couple of uh you know they, they've been playing pretty much everything on 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 the road um i guess eugene has not been super uh, friendly to play golf in up until pretty recently um right. i i believe that this will be um uh next weekend um the the first weekend in april uh uh, the first time they're playing, you know, a game even close to um, Eugene, they'll be in Napa, California. Um, and then uh, they had the Pac-12 championships later in April, and that's the first time they're going to be playing anything in Eugene. Um, so they've been a, you know, real road warrior type of team. Yeah, you have to. It's, you know, it's uh, difficult. Golf is a difficult sport to play in February in the Pacific Northwest. Can you get days that are okay to play? Absolutely. But it's usually wet underfoot a lot of times you've got rain blowing sideways and so it's you know if you want to get in a lot of work you really it's really hard to do it locally and so most of these teams you'll find are traveling california arizona just like this is what the the uh, golf tours do for the professionals is they you know hawaii 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 california arizona florida texas uh, early in the season simply because it, you just can't the conditions yeah, where else are, are you going to play in February? Not not conducive to to uh, playing good golf in, in the winter months. Uh, so yeah, it'll be good I think for Oregon especially to to be able to come back to Eugene and play at a familiar club uh, for the Pac-12 championships and and hopefully do some real damage in that particular tournament. The men's golf team's uh, been pretty up and down. You know they. Uh... 
you know, in November, they, they took, you know, first place in Pebble Beach. Uh, and then the next series they play in Hawaii, they're, you know, basically at the bottom. You know, then they go play in La Quinta in California. And I think they wound up first or second place. Uh, you know, then they and then they come back home. They 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 got to play Band and Dunes, uh, you know, and they finish up first out of 15. And, and, but then the next time they play uh, later on uh, this, you know, this last weekend, Monday and Tuesday, uh, you know, they're, you know, the in Eugene and they wind up, you know, in the middle of the pack. You know, it's really up and down. They, they, they get first or or they don't, um, uh, you know, uh, the. They uh, they just finished up uh, playing against uh, uh, Stanford in a 2018 tournament, you know, and they finished sort of, you know, middle of the pack. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't know, you got any thoughts about the men's team? Well, I think this this tournament that they played this last weekend, uh, the Goodwin tournament down at, at Stanford, sort of, um, I think, shows that what you're talking about there is correct. It's the inconsistency of the team. Now, I will say that in the good one, uh, Oregon, the first day, Oregon played poorly, and they were 18th out of 28 teams in that tournament after the first day's action. Um, interestingly enough, the second round action, Oregon had, in, of the top 10 or 15 teams, Oregon had one of the only scores that was better than its score from the previous day. Lots of teams that were ahead of Oregon fell back Hmm. Uh, and Oregon did very well in that second, the second day of this tournament and ended up in a tie for 10th after the second day and then continued to play well the third day and ended up in fifth overall in the tournament. So um, that sort of points up. They had a poor first day, but then they really turned it on and they actually played very well those last, uh, the last couple of days in, in the Goodwin tournament uh, down in the Bay area. So uh, it's uh, they have been inconsistent. The hope, of course, is that even if you start your season inconsistent over time, you can sort of build some consistency and improve. And by the time you end up in the Pac-12 championships, for example, uh, things will have gotten much better. Well, they, uh, their their last tournament before uh, Pac-12 championships in Santa Cruz, so they got a couple of weekends off, uh, but then they, they'll play uh, uh, April 11th through the 13th. It's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday uh, in, at the Pasatiempo, uh, and we'll wish them well. Um, you want to talk about football? Sure. I've been uh, writing a couple of. Uh, I, I finished up my defensive uh, coach series. Um, uh, I was have been very impressed by the defensive coaching hires, um, and I've started on my uh, the offensive coaches. Um, I wrote a, a two parter about Kenny Dillingham because he's both going to be the uh, offensive coordinator and the quarterbacks coach, and uh, I've got an article uh, ready to go. It'll publish on Thursday um, about Carlos Lachlan, who's the running backs coach. Okay, and what do you find about him? What do you think about Lachlan? His uh, yeah. What do you think his uh, Lachlan's an interesting character. Um, He's uh, he's only had one year of on-field college football coaching, which was last year at Western Kentucky as a running backs coach, Um, and that's what my film study article is about. It's uh, Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, just reviewing that film. Now, the other interesting thing is that they're, they were operating a four running back rotation uh, at Western Kentucky. Um, but they had a number one back, Noah Whittington. He is transferring to Oregon. Um, Oregon's got decent running back depth. You know, they have, you know, Byron Cardwell, uh, who I thought, you know, played really well and will probably be the number one back. But I mean, Noah Whittington, no, having reviewed the film on him now, Noah Whittington could definitely take that job away from him. Um, it, it is entirely possible that that happens. Um, I was impressed by Lachlan. Uh, well, I was impressed by Western Kentucky's running back to room because in 2020, it was a real mess. They had their number one back was a converted defensive back. And, and uh, like you can just tell from his dimensions, like this dude is not supposed to be in every down back um and 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 the way that they compensated for that was they had two other defensive players a linebacker and i'm not kidding about this a defensive tackle um (laughs) carrying the ball in short yardage situations um okay they had uh two of the guys who returned uh in 2021 got some carries in 2020 but they weren't used very well and the other two guys who were part of that four back rotation in 2021 um, uh, for Western Kentucky under Lachlan, um, you know, were totally new. One of them was a freshman. The other was a senior, but he hadn't gotten any carries before and he wasn't a transfer. He'd just been like sitting on the bench for four yeah. years for okay. Western Kentucky. And Lachlan just finds him was like, you're going to be the, the, I think the number two dude in this rotation. Um, <laughs> and he was really good. I was like, by the end of watching that film, I was like, I wish this dude was transferring too. Um, the, the reason that makes me think it's good coaching, other than the fact that, you know, they definitely improved like the, the cumulative average goes up 0.7 yards per carry which is a big jump um as these things go um is that like all of the running backs all four of those backs had exactly the same running style like Mm -hmm. you know it it was not just run however you're comfortable you know everybody's a your your own unique you know snowflake or whatever like nah they were all running the exact same way you know it makes me think that you know that's really coaching um and plus like i said you know it was two guys who were not really used and two guys who were totally unused in 2020 like he just he hit the reset button on the on that room um so i you know uh while okay putting my cards on the table i really like oregon's defensive coaching staff like really mm-hmm. like it um i i realize some of these guys were not the, like household names or anything but once i dove into the film on those guys i was like oh i see the method here you know why he's they're all people who have variant who have experience with variants of this defensive scheme and uh and, and you know that's you know that that's why he assembled this particular crew um you know, I really dig it. And then I'm looking at the offensive side of the ball and I don't see any kind of that, that same kind of synergy, um, you okay. know, the same, you know, so, and plus a couple of these guys who sort of checkered pasts, you know, I haven't gotten to Adrian Clem yet. Um, but he definitely does. Um, uh, and so I'm sort of like, oh boy, I don't know about the offense, but so far, you know, I've done two of these guys, Lachlan and Dillingham. I came away as position coaches anyway. I, I really like Lachlan. I, I really think he's going to be an up and coming coach. Um, the other thing about the guy is that he spent, you know, after he finished up with the pros, he spent eight years as a high school 
coordinator um, in, in Tennessee, offensive coordinator in Tennessee. And like every one of the schools that he coached at, he turns it around. You know, it's not like this, you know, yes, he is new to on-field college coaching. But like I said, eight years uh, in the high school ranks and then four years is, you know, off-field um, positions, you know, basically under Mike Norvell um, the, the whole time. Um, so it's, you know, he... He, it's not like he's new to football or anything. Uh, and it's not like he's new to this offense, you know? Um, and the one time when he struck out on his own, you know, WKU doesn't have any connection to the Norvell sphere. Um, I thought he did very well, you know, and, and with, you know, a lot of evidence that indicates that, that like that was on him, you know, like mm-hmm. hell it was definitely wasn't the new offense coordinator. Who's a total air raid guy. Um, so I, you know, I that was a a, a real pleasant surprise. Dillingham's uh, tape uh, is a, again just sort of confining myself to his job as a quarterbacks coach mm-hmm. is also really encouraging. Like he he, you know, uh, he's been a quarterbacks coach for his entire coaching career, uh, and and I definitely see, you know, I, I, I published a whole article just going through like, look, these guys are making their RPO reads at a very high level. They are, you know, you know, they're, they're layering their passes properly. They do advanced quarterback stuff, like looking off the safeties. Like I came away from Kenny Dillingham's quarterback coaching tape as like, Oh good. You know, I didn't know anything about this guy. And now I think, you know, Oregon got another good position coach. What I am still really uncertain about is what um what the play calling is going to be like what dillingham's experience as a play caller actually even is um i i can only make a guess that he's going to be running mike norvell's offense because seven of the eight years that he was coaching he was working under mike norvell so like what the hell else does he know how to do but i mean that's one where he could still surprise me you know for all i know he wants to come out and run the air raid and he's like well i've been studying this on books (laughs) for all i know so so uh do you expect the Oregon offense to be figuring itself out as it goes through uh, the rest of the spring and the, the fall summer slash fall practices? Is that going to be one of the things they're going to be working on is trying to figure out how we're coming at this as a staff since they're all new? Well, it, the obvious, the short answer to your question is yes, of course, you know, it's a, it's a new staff. Um, that's, that's going to be the case. And like I said, there's not a lot of synergy here. Um, the, 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 you know, uh, Lachlan and Dillingham, um, uh, uh, and interestingly enough, Lorig, the, um, the Joe Lorig, the, the special teams coordinator, um, we're all on in Memphis at the same time. Um, but other than that, like there's, there's not, it's not really like super synergy here. This was definitely looks like the offensive staff was assembled, you know, to be recruiters. Um, the, on the other hand, I will say, um, my expectation is that Dillingham is going to run Norvell's offense. Dillingham knows Norvell's offense pretty well. I like Norvell's offense. And here's the other thing. It's super RPO heavy. In fact, uh, uh, it really looks like Joe Moorhead's offense. Um, There are, there are a couple of staple Joe Moorhead plays that uh, don't show up in the uh, Norvell Dillingham tape. 
so you know uh so for example the triple option rpo that i wrote about a lot last year doesn't seem to show up um there are a couple of plays that don't appear in the dillingham norvell offense that don't show up in the moorhead tape like for example he tends to use tight ends in downfield passing uh, a lot more than moorhead did when moorhead was at oregon um with those uh, exceptions aside um boy these offenses look really similar mm-hmm. um I don't really think that, you know, while I guess I haven't really gotten to the film yet, but I have some qualms about Adrian Clem as an offensive line coach. I don't really think that those are going to pop up in 2022 with all the returners that they have. And I expect the blocking, the expectation, I expect that, you know, what kind of blocking they're going to be doing, what kind of plays that they're going to be running. You're, you're not going to be throwing these offensive linemen for a loop. Um you're not going to be asking uh, the 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 young wide receivers to be doing crazy stuff that they're not familiar with. Um, you know, it's not like they're going to have gone from a system that wasn't blocking at all to a system in which they're going to be required to block a lot. Nope, they were blocking a lot last year. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's going to be a transition. They're going to have to install the offense. It's not like they're going from an air raid to a triple option. Um they're going from one RPO offense to a somewhat different, but mostly the same RPO offense. Um, so, you know, I, I, that transition, I don't really expect to be that difficult. Like I expect, you know, this to get installed pretty smoothly, assuming these guys are competent. It's just, we don't really know if they are because like a lot of these guys have checkered past. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the, the challenge is always to, and this is doubly sure true for a new staff that's coming in with some existing players and is adding some of its own recruits is being able to to design what you're doing to take full advantage of what you have in the rooms and what you can put on the field and so since oregon has been running a little rpo basically um it's it, that's what they have available and whether or not they're continuing to recruit that way they have to they're going to have to win games with the guys mostly with the guys that they've got in the rooms that were are coming back from last year so it's it, go ahead good. so that's the to, for me the challenge for the staff is going to be what can we do with what we have to win games now and how can we build to what whatever it is we're going to be as a team in the future? What do we have to bring in to make that happen? I guess I don't. That's very true. I don't think it's going to be a multi-stage process. Um, I really think that they're the the entirety of the playbook that you're going to see during Dillingham at all's time at Oregon you're going to see it in the first year. It's just not that big of a playbook, um, and it's just not that many like. And while there are some complexities to it, um, especially with the way that the offensive line blocks, there's a lot of power RPO stuff, which is really interesting. Like I, I wound up sort of in a coincidence, I wound up studying our power RPO stuff um, with Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma, you know, because Oregon played him in the Alamo Bowl. And then I turn right. around and turn on the the Memphis and Florida State tape for Dillingham. And I'm like, oh, look, it's more power RPOs. Um, oh, weird coincidence that is. Um it's not a huge playbook. Uh, each play has a number of things that can go off of it, but it's not like, um, 
you know, when I finished doing the Joe Moorhead film study, where I went through 11 years of his career and like every school he stops at, it's a different playbook. Um, mm. That was one where I was like, oh boy, that could definitely be stuff where like they're doing, you know, putting in new stuff for year two and putting in new stuff for year three and year four. Um, mm. If we ever got there, we obviously didn't. Um, I sort of feel like year one of this offense is going to be what you see in year two and is what you're going to see in year three. Now, of course, that's again, speculation because I don't know what kind of offense is going to, I'm just guessing that it's Marvell's, but like, I feel like it's a pretty sound guess. The other thing that you're saying about like, you got to win with the players that you have is that that goes the, the, or, you know, and the players are going to be familiar with this. That goes the other way too. Like the first thing a new staff does when they get to a new uh, school is they go over the tape of the team that they are inheriting. And if they're making schematic changes, it's often difficult to use that tape because it's like, well, this is how these guys performed in this offense where we're going to be running a different offense. And so I don't know how well this is going to translate. That's not going to be, I think, not going to be true in this circumstance. They're going to be able to evaluate how this team, you know, plays in an RPO offense because they were playing in an RPO offense. Like all that is valuable tape. Right. And I think they should be able to hit the ground running, you know, in that sense, like that kind of what you were alluding to is like where they're going to have to take all of these spring practices to figure out which players are good and which players aren't. And it's like, I don't think that's true. I think they know already which players are good and which players are less so um, and, and which players are capable of executing this offense and which are, are less so like uh, I, I think that's you know pretty much a, a known quantity and, and they'll be able to you know get the most out of their spring practices which are ongoing right now the, they'll wrap up in april with the spring game um so yeah you know uh, I, I i i think that should go fairly smoothly and the the guys that i you know i i haven't gotten to the the next Lachlan, the Lachlan article will publish on Thursday. The next guy that I'm going to tackle is Junior Adams, who's the wide receivers coach that Oregon stole from Washington. Mm-hmm. And oh boy, that's an interesting one. Um, <laughs> you know, like kind of the rest of the staff, I'm like, well, yeah, and, and Adams definitely included is like, well, these guys are, are primo recruiters. Um, like Adams was the key to their whole recruiting operation. Um, they. Oh, really? Yeah, Washington was really dependent on Adams as like a, you know, get the foot in the door, you know, kind of guy. And like that really more than anything else looks like, you know, strategic denial, just like just just finish putting the knife in the back of Washington, you know, as a competitive program in the Pac-12, which like. If that's the only thing they accomplished with Junior Adams and he's simply a replacement level wide receiver coach, I would still kind of <laughs> applaud it. <laughs> like, I like the gamesmanship. His record is really interesting because he, um, like, he developed Cooper Cup at Eastern Washington. That was his job before, oh. before he went to Washington proper. Um, and, like, I, I don't know. I, I always kind of liked his receivers at Washington. Um, until they hit 2019 and then it's really bizarre like we had a lot of conversations with washington writers uh you know our, our good friend gaby lucas uh from dog pound um about like what that was about like how much of it was 
you know, these are senior receivers who are inside receivers who now they're playing outside. They'd been catching, you know, uh, softballs from Jake Browning for four years. And now they got to catch, you know, the bullets coming at Jake Beeson's arm. Like there's a lot of different excuses that you can make to not point to junior Adams if you want to, but like ultimately he's still the wide receivers coach. And ultimately it was still the case that like five dudes transferred out of the wide receiver room going into the 2021 season. Um, like there's enough black marks on there. On the other hand, like everybody who left that Eastern Washington, like let's review Eastern Washington's coaching staff and like players in 2013. Uh, they have Bo Baldwin is their head coach. He goes to Cal and flames out. Um, they have, you know, uh, 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 Troy Taylor later on uh, goes to Utah and he gets fired. Um, you've got, on the other hand, you've got Vernon Adams, who is the quarterback. He goes to Oregon and becomes a one-year legend uh, and is still a legend in the CFL. Uh, right. You have Cooper Cup, who Adams developed at Eastern Washington, lights Oregon up, and then goes and wins a Super Bowl. Uh, like, he mm-hmm. literally had the game-winning pass in the Super Bowl on February. Um, it's, you know... Uh, like that Eastern Washington crew uh, is pretty interesting and they have a very, you know, very level of success. I, I sort of think where they land is important. Um, and, and I, I don't know how m- many Oregon fans feel about this, but I, I might be willing to just chalk up like junior Adams, uh, you know, had problems at Washington because Washington sucks and he'll be great at Oregon because Oregon doesn't suck. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't, you know, losing players is something that's happening more and more often to more and more programs. And in some cases, it doesn't have anything to do with the school necessarily or even the coaching staff. It's, as you know, at Washington, you're, they're going to lose players just because they're not any good. The team is yeah. just bad. And it, who wants to finish out their college career on a the losing true. team? Who, who wants to play for Jimmy Lake and John Donovan? That's yeah, exactly. an excellent question. Um, and it's also the case, like some, some attrition is, is inevitable. Like some guys just don't pan out like that. That right. happens. Yeah. Like it, there's any time that any fan base, including Oregon wants to point and laugh at some other program because, Oh, they had a four-star recruit who didn't pan out. Like, dude, that happens. Like that happens yeah. to every program, sure. including Oregon. Like, you know, it's only if there's a disproportionately high rate of, you know, dudes not panning out, which you're not going to find unless you do like holistic evaluations of the entire roster year over year, which there's only one human being on the planet who does that. And you're talking to that person right now. Um, <laughs> and I can tell you, it doesn't, it's not really the case at Washington. There's the, you know, Washington had a cultural problem or they viewed it as a feature, not a bug. I viewed it as a bug uh, in which they were, you know, they would recruit young talent and then they would wait for them to be seniors to play them. Uh, like they, they weren't pushing the Jags out the door fast enough, um, which was say what you will about Mario Cristobal, not Mario Cristobal's problem, right? Like he yeah, played exactly. true freshman right away. It's like, I, I'm sorry, dude, who's a holdover from the Mark Helfrich era. Like, thank you for your service, but a talented player is here now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he's going to play right now. Um, yeah. Like that was not the style of, at Washington. And I can definitely understand why some, you know, why that program struggled the way that they struggled and why kids wanted to hop in the portal when that became an opportunity. Um, yeah, you can't, you can't do that. You cannot, every one of the, in first place, every one of these kids that comes to one of these schools believes that they're the best at their position. Even if they're a freshman, they, they have, they're very high confidence kids and they want to and expect to play. And after a while, if they can't crack playing time, they're going to get tired of it and they're going to, 
head to the portal to go wherever they think they can get playing time. Um, but but you have to play your bet every one of these coaches, and this is a mistake obviously Washington's been making. Your future career depends on your ability to win games. And if you're going to continue to play players who are not as good as guys you've got on the bench simply because they are seniors, then you're not going to have your job as long as you otherwise would. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's real danger here uh, for Oregon fans, you know, to get into confirmation bias is sort of the theme of the episode uh, about like, you know, you want to believe certain things that are, you know, toxic or delusional about the Washington program because we all perceive the, you know, the Washington fan base to be toxic and delusional. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably too easy to overstate those things. On the other hand, oh man, I, I, I track these rosters, I chart the games, I track playing time, and it really is the case that they, you know, they are, you know, there was definitely an added, the attitude that, that, that starts in recruiting of, we want to recruit a certain type of player and that we reward a certain type of play. Uh, and we reward loyalty and seniority. Uh, and, and that's going to go over raw talent. You know, when they had their recruiting transformation in the 2018, 2019 classes, sort of the end of the Chris Peterson Peterson era when they were finally paying it off, you know, all the success that they had and going to the the CFP in 2016, when they were finally like paying that off by getting some great recruits. And then it was like, and they were just like, well, but this attitude is what got us here. So we're going to, you know, stick with it. And it's like, man, there are a lot of Jags that were playing for the Washington Huskies, you know, at the the last like three, four years. Um, And, you know, it'll be interesting at Washington, they're going through, you know, now another coaching transition, but a lot of those guys, you know, they didn't, you know, the wide receivers transferred out, but but the rest of the team didn't, um, you know, there's still, they've had a lot of injury problems. This is sort of like sneaky thing that people don't really talk about is sort of sympathy for the devil there, but like, boy, they have a real hard time keeping their linebackers healthy for, for one thing. Um, uh, but anyway, the, uh, you know, for anybody who's like celebrating the death of Washington, I would say like, yeah, celebrate that in like a year or two down the road. Like they're still a dangerous team. I like DeBoer's, you know, coaching staff and, you know, getting back to junior Adams boy, I kind of like, you know, taking that, <laughs> taking that guy away, um, <laughs> you know, like accelerating the demise of Washington, um, uh, you know, might, you know, just well be worth it, you know, from a totally strategic perspective uh, for, for, for that reason alone. Um, I, it will be interesting as I dive into the film on junior Adams, like to see if I can isolate, like, you know, are there coaching problems or the talent problems where they were recruiting different guys that they should have been like, you know, I don't want to talk too much trash about the guy, but Puka Nakua, you know, is there, was their best wide receiver recruit by a country mile. Um, and the guy, you know, transfers out along with his brother who went to Utah. Both of them wind up at BYU. There's a lot of discussion about that guy, like not liking the COVID protocols, the strict COVID protocols that University right. of Washington put in place, in which case I'm sort of like, hey, I, I like Washington implementing strict COVID protocols. And if they've got a truther on the, you know, on the roster right. and he wants to bounce, uh, you know, I'm sort of like, uh, you know, as an Oregon fan, I'm definitely like good riddance. I might be like, you know, good riddance fire Washington fan. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, that's because that can be disruptive. You don't want disruptive personalities in your locker room. So anyway, the, there's there are a lot. I, I I haven't, you know, dove into the film with a deliberate intention for for 
for picking this out because, you know, while obviously I've been writing previews of Washington for many, many years now, like all I'm writing about is this is the level of performance to expect. Um, I'm not doing the work in my weekly previews to tease out okay, I think this issue is because of this guy and this issue is because of this guy and this issue is pretty, uh, because of that guy. Like I, you know, I'm just, you know, I, until I assign myself that project for this particular article, I just haven't done that work um, to tease it out yet. I hopefully will have some more answers when it's time to publish that article. But I am saying in advance as my preview to the preview uh, that like, boy, there are a lot of excuses that are ready to go for Junior Adams that may even be valid. Yep. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that in print. Uh, uh, that's that's about it for me. Uh, I briefly glanced at the mailbag. It looks like no one has any questions uh, for us. We have a lot of complaints about uh, cultural matters. Uh, we have complaints about uh, USC seems to be recruiting. I, I, I'm not sure why that should be surprising to anybody. Uh Let's see. It looks like the, 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 the closest thing to a question mark that we have is, uh, uh, are we panicking too early? And it looks like Mario's mustache is our, our, our glorious leader emeritus has already answered that is that we're, we're several months behind in <laughs> panicking. It is always time to panic and, yeah. and you should have been panicking more. Always the right time. I don't think there's any question about that. All right. I think that's going to do it for this week. All righty. Thank you so much. It was fun. Yeah, it was good talking to you. Uh, take care.